turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 10. And the title of the message is Winning Mind Battles. And we're going to start 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Paul writes, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am based among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. From approximately 1500 B.C. to 1861 A.D. That's... A lot of years there. The world has known 3,130 years of war during that span and merely 227 years of peace. The last 400 years, European nations have signed more than 8,000 peace treaties of one sort or another. In the 20th century, just in this past century, 20 million people died in World War I. 60 million died in World War II. And just the Vietnam War, which is fairly recent for our country, 58,220 U.S. lives were lost and 304,000 304, military people were injured, personnel were injured. The point of that is this world has been a place of non-stop war, almost total non-stop war. So it's been estimated, one man, I don't know how he estimated this, but he estimated that there has been 14 billion people killed in the wars of the human race. 14 billion people killed because of war. I mean, that is terrible. And the 8,000 peace treaties have done little to stop it. Haven't really done a whole lot because we live up to this day, don't we? We live in a world of war. And the Lord said that that's the way it would be. What we want to get to is it's the same in the spiritual realm. As Christians here today, we're locked in a life and death struggle, a holy war, if you could say, with the powers of darkness, and it's not going away. It is not going away, this war that we're involved with, with the powers of darkness and the king of darkness, Satan. It's not going away for as long as we live. And I'll say the biggest mistake that any Christian can ever make is to sign one of those 8,000 peace treaties with the devil. Because let me tell you a little secret. He'll break it every time. Every time, just like Hitler did. The whole Bible is filled with warfare language, isn't it? And Paul's letters are filled with warfare language. Like Romans 13, 12, he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. He says, Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. The call is to put on armor. Why? Because the day is approaching. The day of the Lord is near. This is no time to quit fighting. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And in 2 Timothy 2, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness 
as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. We could go on and on with that, but it's clear that we are called to be soldiers. We are called into warfare, and that's what we have to endure because that's what it means to be a Christian. When you got baptized at the river, <laughs> when that happened, that's when you cashed in your draft card because you were drafted right then and you're reported for duty and were handed a suit, a suit of armor. So if you would, turn to Ephesians 6. I know we taught on this a while back, but it has been a while back. We're not going to teach on Ephesians 6, but I do want to look at that. Look what it says, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. The point of this is that we are in a warfare. It's not going away, and we're called to it, and we're called to fight. Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He's saying we are engaged. Whether you are engaged or not, they are engaged with you. If you are a believer, they're after you. The powers of darkness, and they are not fooling around. And they're not weak, and they're not stupid, and they've got schemes and plans. So that's why he says in verse 13, wherefore, because of that, what I just said in verse 12, Paul says, take unto you, he says it again, the whole armor of God, that, here's the purpose, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. He's telling us we are under attack. I mean, you could say we have got a spiritual bullseye on our back. And like I said, the forces of darkness, they're coming after you. They mess with the people in the world. He's got his whole system to do that. But he especially trains his guns, the devil does, and all his schemes and plans and his high-level men against Christians, against those that he knew. He could see in the spiritual realm. He knows who's trusting God, who's believing in the blood and all of that. He does. He's, he's the spirit, and this is all taking place in the spiritual realm. So he says, take and put on the whole armor of God, because that's the only way he's saying you can stand or withstand in the evil day. And that word withstand means to resist. They're coming at you. It's the word for resist, to stand your ground. You've got to have that armor on, or he will roll you over. When is that to be taken place? He says, in the evil day. In the evil day. And an evil day to me is when the devil is viciously coming at me in different ways and on all sides. And I would call that an evil day. And in case you just woke up from a long winter's nap, and we still got the winter going on, maybe if you're sleeping, maybe you need to wake up, I don't know. But we've got to see here, that's what's happening to our church right now. I get to see the big picture because I get all the different phone calls at times. We've got not just physical things, we've got people with mental issues having struggles there and all kinds of problems. The devil's coming at us and he's out to destroy all of us in here and shut the doors down on this church. He'd love to see that happen. And that's what's going on. With all of this though, what we need to see is we though are not victims. We have got to guard against having a victim's mentality. Yes, 
We're put under many trials in this church right now, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional. But a victim does what? What does a person do when they have this victim mentality? They just lay down and give up. Why is this happening to me, to us? Why is this happening? And I'm not minimizing anyone's trials. I'm really not. I know what it's like. And I know it's not easy, but we have got to see that God has not called us to lay down our weapons and run. We have got to put on our armor. This is what the call is, isn't it? Isn't it what we just read, what Paul said? We have got to put on our armor for the purpose of what? Fighting back. How many times and how many ways does the New Testament encourage us to fight back? Because there is no chapter or verse on going AWOL. There's not a chapter or verse that encourages that in any way. We've got the fight back, and it's spirits. It's a supernatural war we're involved in. This is not some carnal war. We can get caught up into thinking this person's doing this or that or trying to do whatever. No, it's spirits operating through them. Sometimes they knowingly are doing it, and sometimes I think these spirits operate through people to get you upset, to cause you to get emotionally upset, and they don't even realize what they're doing. But it's spirits working through them we got to fight back against that, not just lie down. There's spirits of fear, discouragement, depression, and doubt that come and attack us. Either they'll attack us individually, like directly, or they'll attack us through people a lot of times. And things they say, suggestions they make, it's all from the adversary, though, like I said. And we need to resist, like the French resistance. The French resistance, the Germans, they had technically taken over their country, but they're like, you may be in our country, but we will resist to the end. And they would. They didn't just sit back and take at all those Frenchies. No, they fought back. And that's what we need to do, don't we? Sometimes it can seem like the devil's got his foot on your neck, but you've got to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm fighting you back. I'm not laying down and taking this. Here's the words we have from Paul. He says, fight the good fight of faith. That's what he tells us, 1 Timothy 6, 2. And you say, Mama told me not to fight. Well, this is a fight you can get in because God's greater than your mama. And he says that it is a good fight. It's a fight you're going to win, the best fight you'll ever get in. And let me tell you why. I mean, there was one time this guy wanted to fight me at school. He was an older kid, and they all set it up. We we're going to meet in the park and all that. I just wasn't real anxious to get in this fight because I'm sizing him up, and I'm thinking, you know, it's going to be pretty close. So I just didn't show up. They came knocking on my door. I'm like, I had answered the door. But this is a fight we're guaranteed to win. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to lay down and take it, do we? We don't. Speaking of the cross, and he's talking about the cross in context. And Paul in Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it, in the cross. So having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. What that language is, we're not getting it so much in our English, but it's language of conquest when it says he triumphed over them in it. And it's a word, that word for triumph over them is a word describing the Roman generals. When they had conquered another country, another city, another nation, they would have a parade through the streets of Rome. The general and his troops would be leading the way and all the defeated soldiers were chained 
and not in good shape in being. They had to walk behind them in disgrace. That's our spiritual enemies back there. And he says he is triumph over them in it, in the cross. There's a triumphal march that's made by the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, who are the victims? The devil and his agents. They are the victims. Now, they haven't been vanquished to hell yet, have they? And they're still alive and well, and God uses them for our good through our trials. But they don't have ultimate power over us, do they? They really don't. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, we know this verse. It says, now thanks be unto God who always causes us. And here's the same word used again. He always causes us to triumph in Christ. It's that same word that's used for the triumphal procession that was used back in Colossians. And what that's telling us is we share in our commander's triumph. His victory over the devil and all of his agents and all that, and he's parading them. He's saying, we're part of the army that's following the general. We're part of that victory. Is it just sometimes that that's the case? Because it says, who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. Always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. We could keep repeating that. That's something to meditate on, isn't it? You're struggling with whatever and you feel like the devil's overwhelming you. That's a verse to meditate on. Instead of all the trouble you're having, he always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. Write it on a card and write this one on there too. Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. All these things, you know what all these things he was referring to? He had just talked about. It's a pretty impressive list. He said, tribulation, distress, we sing the song, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. He's saying in all of those things, none of those, none of those should defeat a Christian. Yeah, in all those things, peril, distress, famine, no food. And in all of those things, we are more than conquerors. Hooper Nikeo. Now, Nikeo, we get the word Nike, that means to prevail completely. And when you add Hooper to that, it's just a heightened form. You've prevailed completely, but this is over and above prevailing completely. You don't just prevail completely. That would be fine with me, wouldn't it? You won the battle. But he's saying you are gaining a surpassing victory is what he says. Or as one interpreter said, we're winning a most glorious victory. And why is that? Because we're big and bad? Because we're so spiritual and worthy? What does it say? We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. It's because of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's because of him, because of his power and authority that we talked about last week. His power and authority through him that loved us. The devil's coming after you say, I am going to be more than a conqueror through him that has loved me. He's not going to allow me to just be grounded to the ground and defeated and left miserable, is he? Not the Lord. We have to think about that. And believe that. Remind ourselves in that. At any rate, the point I was trying to get to, I'm still saying it, is we're going to be involved in warfare till our last breath. 
our last breath. Calvin said this, the life of a Christian, it is true, is a perpetual warfare. For whoever gives himself to the service of God will have no truce from Satan at any time, but will be harassed with incessant disquietude. Disquietude means anxiety, distress. He said he is going to harass you to the end that way, and that's the way it is. So in other words, he is not going to leave you alone. But we're guaranteed, we've got the guarantee, that's why I quoted those verses, that we will come out victorious, won't we? That's the guarantee. So he will harass us, but that is for our good and for our growth, and we will gain the victory over him. That's the guarantee that God has given us. That's what those promises are. And I think we've gotten to the point to where, well, we hear all that and it all sounds good, but we really don't think it's reality. But it should be reality, shouldn't it? we got to put our trust because we still say God is faithful, who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. So what I want to look at here back in 2 Corinthians 10 is that we need to understand the nature of the battle I want to look at first and where it takes place. In verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're what? They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. There's a little bit of what I would call sanctified irony there in what Paul's writing, because he had enemies. This whole letter is written, and especially these last chapters, 10 to 13. He's got these super apostles and these false teachers. He's got these enemies that are attacking him personally. And in doing that, they're hoping to undermine the gospel that he's preaching. So they're after him. They accuse him of walking, look what it says there, walking according to the flesh at the end of verse 2. As opposed to walking in the spirit. These guys were trying to get a foothold, and they were, in the Corinthian church because they were charismatic, they were eloquent, they were imposing figures that gave one appearance They gave an appearance of being spiritual, eloquent, we're helping you guys, we're here for your good. They gave that appearance, but in reality, that's not what they were. I don't have time to go through the whole thing to show all that. You read it through. That's what's going on. Paul's having to defend himself against these men. But if you would, we're in chapter 10. All you have to do is look over in chapter 11, and we can see that, though. Chapter 11, verse 12 He says, but what I do that I will do that I may cut off occasion from them that desire occasion that wherein they glory. These men were glorying in themselves. They may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. What do they do? They transform themselves into what? Not the devil, not with the pitchfork and a horn. They transform themselves. They appear as apostles of Christ. And Paul says, no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He says, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, but whose end shall be according to their works. And I say again, let no man think me a fool, yet as a fool receive me that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, Paul says, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in the confidence of boasting, because that's what they were doing. He's like, I don't want to have to do this, but I've got to set things straight. Seeing that many, these many, these false apostles, they do what? They glory after the flesh. 
Paul says, I'm forced to say that I will glory also. But look what he says in verse 19. They, these guys were getting a foothold. He says, you suffer fools gladly, seeing you yourselves are wise, for you suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man slap you on the face. He's saying, look, these guys are coming in here and just because they're eloquent and they sound really good, but they're taking advantage of you. They're slapping you in the face. They're taking your money. They're after and they're getting on me because I'm not taking your money. He's saying these are false apostles, false teachers is what he's talking about. What's going on here? So these guys are coming across as that they're spiritual. They're boasting that they're spiritual giants with spiritual power. But Paul, they're saying, oh, he's just ministering in the flesh. That's what they say. Go back and look in chapter 10 and verse 2. He says, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, that's these men he's talking about, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They looked at Paul and they're like, look at him. He's weak. His bodily presence is Ah, nasty, he can't speak, he lacks eloquence, he's meek and gentle mannered, he doesn't have any money, the guy's got to work, he can't speak well enough to get enough offering to take care of himself, and look at the list of all his constant trials and difficulties. He's beat up all the time, he's <laughs> shipwrecked, fasting and famine and whatever, and the guy's a mess. This is not somebody you guys want to follow, you want to follow people like us. Well-dressed, well-heeled, well-spoken, and he doesn't even have any visions like we do. We tell you of our visions all the time. That's why Paul had to finally tell him, no, I've had a vision or two, like being caught up into the third heavens in the presence of God. I don't want to have to tell you about that, but I will. And they took all of that things with Paul. Outwardly, he doesn't look like much. He just doesn't seem to be doing well, doesn't seem to be a strong person. He can't speak well. And they took that as evidence that his ministry is of the flesh and not of the spirit. But Paul answers them ironically. Look what he says. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. He's like, yeah, I'm in the flesh, but not in the way that you're saying. So if you're saying I'm in the flesh, that I'm just a vessel of clay, my body's decaying like everybody else's, that I'm subject to weakness and Satan's thorn in the flesh, like any man would be, he would say, well, yeah, then I am in the flesh. That's how I walk. I'm just a regular human being. But he's like, but don't take my outward appearance as all there is. Because he's telling them when it comes to spiritual warfare, that's not done by me in the flesh. My weapons, he's saying, aren't like your fellas. This fleshly wisdom, man's wisdom. He says, my weapons are what? Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds divinely powerful weapons. But what we're seeing there is that the nature of the battle is spiritual, isn't it, that we're in. It's not physical, it's not fleshly. And what are we in a battle for? What are we in a battle for right now? I mean, big time. We're in a battle for truth. Truth. Because what will set people free? The truth will set you free. And the opposite will put you in bondage. The battle in men's minds, this spiritual warfare, is for truth. Establishing truth in men and women's heart. And that isn't waged, that battle isn't waged and won by guns and bombs or swords. 
But how is it waged? By preaching the truth in power. That's the weapon that he's using about. Because listen, Islam, one of the main religions in this world right now, has gained its converts through the point of the sword. And since its beginning up to the present, maintains its grip on people through fear and intimidation is how it works. I wrote this quote down a long time ago and I remembered I had it. And he says, you can put a sword to someone's throat and make him at least a sufficiently good Muslim. But he says, I cannot put a sword to someone's throat and make him a Christian. The Catholics have done that, though, haven't they? They've tried to do that through threats and putting people on the rack and the Inquisition and all that. But you can't get in somebody's heart and mind that way, can you? That's not how you conquer. The Old Testament, they did war with the sword, didn't they? They conquered their enemies that way. But you know when all that stopped? Peter pulled out his sword and Jesus told him what? You put it back away. And that's not the way that from there on out, that's not the way the church wins hearts, is it? It's through the preaching of the gospel that it takes place. That's how it works. So we don't carry guns around. We don't shoot people that could be unsaved and send them to hell because they what? They might kill us and send us to heaven. So listen, true Christianity is a supernatural change, isn't it? That never happens by coercion. It's when a sinner hears the word of God after he has opened their mind and heart, regenerated them. He's able then to do what? To repent and believe the gospel. But where are the carnal weapons that are involved in that? It's not even through human wisdom, is it? Because Paul says, look, I've never preached that way, 1 Corinthians 1. I don't use man's wisdom or all this rhetoric and all that. No, and he could have. That guy was brilliant. But he's like, no, I just give you the simple truths of the gospel, that he died on the cross, like what we've been talking about on Wednesday night. Died in your place. He was your substitute. Your old man died with him. Just simple truths like that. And you believe that, and God will change your heart and life. Put his spirit within you, and on and on and on, as they say. Matthew Henry said the doctrines of the gospel and the discipline of the church are the weapons of this warfare. And those weapons are not carnal. And Matthew Henry says outward force, therefore, is not the method of the gospel, but strong persuasions by the power of truth and the meekness of wisdom. That's how hearts are changed. That's how minds are converted. That's how strongholds are broken down. The question is, where does this supernatural battle take place? You know, all great battles that have taken place, they have a chosen battleground. You know, back when I was reading all that Civil War stuff at one time, you know, it just so happened that it was kind of a fluke that the big armies of the North and the South, they just happened to converge in Gettysburg, of all places, this little town. But they get there and these generals are like, this is good ground to fight on. The battle took place right there, that good ground to fight on. And the chosen battleground between God and Satan is waged where? It's in our minds. That is the battleground. And the words that Paul is using here in these few verses that we've read in chapter 10, especially verses four and five have to do with our minds. He talks about imaginations in the King James or reasonings, depending on the version you have, speculations, arguments. He talks about knowledge, the knowledge of God and bringing every thought 
to the obedience of Christ. And every one of those words has reference to what? Your mind. We've got to see that Satan has determined to take control of every mind in the human race. That's his goal. He wants to take control and he wants to captivate every mind in the human race. And he wants to keep every person's mind in darkness. We're in 2 Corinthians 10. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 4. He wants to keep everyone's mind in darkness. And look what it says, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, but if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are what? Lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the what? The minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He's saying that is his goal. He fights with all he has to keep the world's minds in darkness. And what is the light of the glorious gospel? Look down in verse 6 of that same chapter. It says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to do what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to do the same thing to us. So I'm saying if you're saved, it's because enough light has come in that you've seen what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross and you're able to commit yourself to him by God's grace. He's granted you the gift of repentance. That much light has to come in. But listen, that's where he's wanting to continue to keep us in darkness and put darkness there where maybe you once had light. We see that happening. So his goal is saint or sinner. He doesn't care. He wants that darkness to come back over your mind. That's what those strongholds are. The light can't come in then. And that's why we talked about this too frequently. I know now why Brother Hamilton would wear this verse out because it's a good one to wear out. But in light of what we're talking about, that the mind is the battle place and that we need to have light, that God has to command supernatural power to command his light to overcome that darkness that is there. That's what happens when anyone's saved then we need to get back to Ephesians 1, don't we? Where we can be given light, the wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him is that prayer, that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened. Enlightened what? To see His power, the inheritance He's given us. The word for understanding, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened is a Greek word that is translated mind many other places, your understanding or your mind. For instance, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. That's the same word that's translated the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. We need to love God with our understanding, your mind, and our mind has spiritual eyes. For good or for bad, we see spiritual truth, don't we? Because if you are seeing darkness, you're seeing these things the devil is putting in front of you as being this is what you believe and this is all you can see. And light has to come into where you see, just like we said with Elijah's servant, wait a minute, all I was seeing was these chariots here that physically are going to do me in. But when your spiritual eyes are open, you're saying, wait a minute here, no, there's something else I was missing. The devil had me blinded to it. He had a stronghold in front of it. I couldn't see God's glorious power and his nature and his love and his mercy and his holiness. All of it. 
That's what those strongholds that are set up through the world system and all these spirits, that's what's behind what they're doing. They're blinding the world. It just that's what happened with the world rulers. If they could have seen who the Lord was, but they were blinded to it, wasn't they? And they crucified the Lord of glory because that was veiled in flesh and they couldn't see it. We need light to come into our minds to dispel the darkness that has been there in many cases for years. What did it say in Genesis? The power of God through his word says, let there be light. And that's what he has to say to us. And that light is his word, isn't it? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light. So we can see where to go, a light unto my path. He works overtime, the devil does, to build those strongholds and fortresses in the minds of the unsaved. You got an unsaved loved one, that's what's going on. And he builds them so high and so thick that it seems like no light could ever penetrate them. And they are impenetrable, can't be torn down. All this imagery here is on siege warfare where they would come and here's these huge high walls. But they're like, what are we going to do? How can we tear these down? And that's the way it is with the unbeliever's mind. These walls and these fortresses and these bulwarks built up in unbelievers' mind are not going to be broken down by anything that is fleshly, by reasoning, by arguments, no matter how good they are, by logic. We've seen that. I've seen that. You can tell somebody they want to believe a certain thing, and you can logically lay out, here's, I'm just telling you, here's what happened. I don't believe that because they're blinded. They don't want to see And it's useless to argue with them because they're just going to dig their heels in deeper and become hardened and allow Satan to build his fortress higher. So you know someone that's unsaved, the worst thing you're going to do is just try to just get in an argument with them about all that, right? That's not going to get you anywhere, per se. You may have to share the word, but it's only that word that comes with power, that divinely empowered weapon that will break through that fortress there. It's not going to be our fleshly arguments and reasoning and logic. That's what we're seeing there. Only one way to penetrate them. Supernaturally energized words by the Spirit of God. The battleground is in the mind and the heart. Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you think or what you meditate on, that is what you will become because that is a spiritual law. What you think is what you will become. Believe. And that's why Paul exhorts us and begs us in Romans 12.1. He says, I beg you, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God to just please get up on God's operating table. Get up on the altar. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice and let him do a brain transfusion. Because he wants to take our mind, take away that mind that has been molded and shaped by the world And I would say the church and the devil, and he wants to replace it, doesn't he? Because that says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or worship. And he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by, we're back to the renewing of your mind. Because the battle for our souls, it's either won or lost in the mind. In Romans 8, he says the mind of the flesh, the mind of the world, the carnal mind is death. That's the mind we're born with. And that's the mind that everyone has until they become regenerated. 
And Paul says we're not to be conformed to this world. And that's a passive word. That means we're not to be conformed. We're not to be passively molded into all of these ideas and concepts and all this political correctness that the world's throwing at us. And that happens just by living in a culture that is controlled by spiritual wickedness, evil spirits controlled by that. And that's how those strongholds are built up in people's mind, brick by brick, day by day, because they give themselves over to our culture, our media, all the things that are said, right? People's concepts and ideas. We're not a Christian-dominated culture here in the United States, not at all. From everything on how to view sickness, how to get ahead in this world, and how to react when someone does you wrong, that's all how the world does things, and that's what we're seeing. And if we're giving all of our mind, attention, and meditation to that, then we will be like the world, and we'll have trouble living what we know God wants us to do. That's their pattern. And the world's pattern for dealing with things and the Bibles, in case you don't know that, are polar opposites. They really are. Whatever you're giving your mind over to the most is what you will believe, and that is what you will act on. We need to think about that, don't we? It's that important. That's why he begs them. I beseech you by the mercies of God. He's had mercy on you. Don't be conformed to this world. Get up on that altar. That's the only way it's going to happen. It's got to be a willing, living sacrifice. We have to get up there. He's saying when you're up there, when what should be taking place is this conformity to the world. Don't let that happen. You're on that altar so that you can be transformed. That's a marked change. That word means a marked change in nature, form, and appearance. In other words, to be changed into something completely different than what you were is the way it should be. You know, we always hear that metamorphosis, which is the word from a worm to a butterfly. There's no comparison between the two, right? We've heard that a lot. But that change should be evident in us, and it happens where? Where does it start? Where does that true change, if it happens? It's not this outward action. It happens in the mind and in the heart. By tearing down this destruction of Satan's strongholds, the imaginations and reasonings he's put in there. We should be changed if you're a Christian. And this isn't like you have to have been some drug addict laying in the gutter doing all those things like some of us, that's our testimony. No, 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 no. <laughs> you don't have to have all that to have this metamorphosis take place. You should change from being a selfish, lying, perverse, proud, unbelieving person that's before you get up on that altar, before God's given you a new nature and a new heart, to what should the change that takes place through His Word, to where we become loving, forgiving, trusting servant of God and of others. Servants of God and of others. That's the mind. That is the mind that Christ wants us to have, that God wants us to have. And He tells us that in Philippians 2. He says, we're talking the mind is the battleground and our mind needs to be conformed to his mind. And he says, let this mind be in you. Which mind? That was in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to get rid of that old mind that was shaped by the world and transform our minds to be like Christ, to let it be renewed. What does that mind look like? But he tells us before he said that, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. He told us what that mind looks like. It looks like this. Paul says, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, 
but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's the mind he wants us to have. Because that's when he goes on to say, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That mind. Putting others ahead of yourself. Not doing things out of strife or vainglory, wanting to be the preeminent one. Third John has something to say about that. But the mind that he wants us to have is the mind of Christ. When you look back in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says this. He says, now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And that was the mind that Paul had. But he's put down by those apostles, false apostles in Corinth, for having a mind like that. Because those people in that city, they considered that a sign of weakness. And they were talking about him behind his back to tear him down. And in doing that, they're trying to tear down their agents of the devil to tear down his gospel message. Because look in verse 10. Look what they say about him. They say, for his letters say they, these men, they're weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. They're like, this guy is nothing. And Paul's telling the Corinthians, he says, look, I came to you in meekness and gentleness. And some of you despise me for that. It's not because I am meek and weak in the way that you think. Because he's telling them, I'm telling y'all, if y'all don't straighten up some of you, I'm going to show you that I'm not as meek and weak as you thought. Because I've got these weapons that I have the authority to exercise and I will exercise them. And he did. They should be thinking, man, back in 1 Corinthians 5, Mr. Meek and Weak turned somebody over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh when they wouldn't repent of fornication. They should have remembered that. But Paul is like, look, when he came around, he's like, well, they're saying his letters are all weighty, but when he gets around, he's a nice guy. Well, that's kind of the way Paul was. He's just a nice guy. He's a Christian. <laughs> he's not one to just come in there and be throwing his weight around. And he's like, you're all were reading that wrong. But back then, those super apostles, they're like, humility is not a grace. That's the way those Grecians were. It's not a grace to be desired, but it's weakness. And according to Greek tradition, great men were anything but humble. They'd boast about themselves. And in classic Greek literature, those that were meek and humble, when you read about it, they were considered just, you're just a lowly base servant. You're not a real man that has dignity and worth. Anyone that would be meek and humble like that, if you think about it, isn't that the way our world operates today? From our president, I don't mean this disrespectfully, right on down to the dog catcher. We see our culture conforming to people, and we see it in the sports realm, we see it in all kinds of realms where they are just self-promoters and boastful, don't we? We see that, demanding their rights, disobeying laws. It's becoming more and more prevalent in young people. They have no fear of authority. Michael Webb told me that. He says, as a policeman, I see it's getting worse. It's an epidemic. Young people have no fear of authority whatsoever of a policeman. That's being conformed to the world. But it comes into our thinking because we see it on the media, we see it in these shows. We see women disrespectful to their husbands and think that's funny. And so that just becomes like a cultural norm. Things like that take place. 
and you have all this homosexual, transgender, people living together, people having babies out of wedlock. Now, I'm not up here saying none of that could be forgiven or that we should hate people because of all that, but that's being presented like we should accept that as that is acceptable and that that's acceptable to God. It's not acceptable to God. We got to call sin, sin, or we got major problems, don't we? Especially the church. But all those mindsets and others, they're strongholds that Satan's building in the minds of saints and sinners alike. And it's mindsets that do what? When people this world now, when you more and more try to share the gospel with them, these strongholds are built up and they can't receive it. They can't understand what you're saying. They can't hear it. Not only that, they think what you're saying is wrong, not right. They've got things upside down. I'm saying that's what he's doing. Our concern is in here, though, too, isn't it? That is influencing us and our thinking. Because we're too given over to the culture. All of us are. Because those fortresses that he's building and in our society coming into church, they're opposed to the word of God. Verse 1, he's begging them, beseeching them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's saying, look, I'm just letting you know this is the way it should be. I'm not like these other guys. I'm just demonstrating the attitude that our Lord had, Paul's telling the Corinthians. You guys think that's weakness? No, this is what your Lord demonstrated. And it's not what these false apostles are doing. That's what he's saying. Because what did the Lord say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And he says what? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn what? He says, I am meek and lowly in heart. That is what we're going to learn from him, aren't we? When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will teach us how to think about ourselves and how to think about others, that we should be meek and lowly in heart. The battle is for the hearts and minds of all mankind. That is the battlefield. And that battle, everyone sitting in here and me standing up here, that battle is going on right now, every day. The question is, are we fighting it? Are we fighting it like we should? Are we just allowing ourselves to be passively conformed to the world and its way of thinking, its worldview? How it looks at how things should be done, how you should react, that's your worldview. There's a biblical worldview. This is how we should look at things. Paul exhorted us in Philippians 4.8, he said this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So what should we think on? Rumors, speculations, fears, doubts, worries, gossip, resentment, hatred, I don't think I could reread. I don't think any of those were on the list of what he wants us to be thinking about. Those are all strongholds. Everything I just mentioned there that block out the knowledge and the light and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to think and meditate on what is true, honest, just, pure. That takes out looking at pornography, lovely, of a good report, and anything that is worthy of praise. And when we do that, you know what happens? That will bring in light and virtue into our soul. 
Well, it'll dispel the darkness because it's all won or lost right up here. That's what we're learning. So this week, it's one of these things again to where I had like whatever all points, I got through half of them, and here we are at the end. So this is part one, we'll have part two next week. Well, what we established, I hope, is that going back, we are in a warfare, and we need to accept that mindset. We need to have a warrior's mentality. All of us do, don't we? Gotta have a warrior's mentality, and we're not victims. Get rid of that victim mentality. We are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And retreat is not one of the commands he ever gives. And the good news is, though, though we are in this war, we are guaranteed victory. Why? It's because it's through him, through his power, through his authority, and through his love. The love, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We need to get back to amen in those truths and not doubting them. Amen. I've heard quite a few amens. That's good. And also we talked about that the nature of our warfare is spiritual, not carnal. And the battlefield is the mind, where he's built those strongholds. But God's word can bring deliverance and tear them down, destroy them, and his light can come in. That's what it's designed to do. The next week, there's several strongholds I'd like to look at and how we battle them with the divinely empowered weapons that God has given us. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the truth of your word, and I ask you, Lord, that you'll help us all to see that we are in a warfare that doesn't stop, Lord, but that through you, through your grace, and through your power and your presence in us, we are more than conquerors. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, Lord. I just ask you'll help us to see that, and you'll encourage anyone that's been discouraged that that you will fight with them, that the battle is yours, and all they need to do is trust you, Lord, and just obey you, and you'll be with them to deliver them. And I just ask you, Lord, that your presence will continue to be here at our church and with us. I just ask you'll make us a praying people that seek your face and pray for each other and pray for ourselves and the situations that we see. Just ask you, Lord, that you'll do that and have mercy on us here. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.